0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to a special bonus episode of 30 Albums for 30 Years. I am your host, Jay Sweet. In today's episode, we will be featuring my interview with the great Stanley Clark. Now, if you don't know who Stanley Clark is, well, Stanley Clark is a bass wizard who transformed the electric bass from its accompanying role and showed the world the possibilities of the electric bass as a solo instrument. Additionally, he's a virtuosic double bass player, and an accomplished film composer. Clark is a five-time Grammy winner with 15 nominations. His Grammy wins include three for his solo efforts, one with the Stanley Clark Band, and one with the groundbreaking Return to Forever, of which he was a founding member. In addition to all of his credits and his activities, it turns out that Stanley Clark is a really friendly guy with a great sense of humor And as a lifelong fan of his music, it was a great honor to interview the legend. I truly enjoyed our conversation, and I get the sense that Stanley did as well. We discussed everything from his early upbringings, his friendship with Chick Corea, his years with Return to Forever, his solo albums, touring with Jeff Beck and the Rolling Stones, and and much, much more. So I want to just give you a little context as to how this whole interview came about. Um, Through my connections... As a writer for New Jersey Jazz Magazine, and through the various musicians I've either played with or met, I sometimes get to uh, interview some of my greatest personal musical heroes, and Stanley Clark uh, definitely falls into that category. I've been trying to get in touch with Stanley uh, beginning around February of 2022, 2022, when I wrote a short piece on the recipients of the Jersey Jazz Master Series an award that's given through the National Endowment of the Arts. And when I saw, I wasn't able to at that time, and when I saw he was coming to New Jersey with his new band, and forever, uh, I decided to give it another try. So after several back and forths with his publicist, I spent part of my Valentine's Day speaking with the bass legend. The idea was to have the conversation over video chat, which I often do. That helps me to capture... The audio a little bit better. And I was told to give Stanley a call right before, uh, before the interview to connect through this video chat. So I get him on the phone and he told me he was driving, I think he said, in Tijuana. And he asked if it would be okay if we interviewed via phone, the phone conversation. So like, what am I, I going to do? Say no to Stanley Clark? So quickly, I'm scrambling to find the best way to record this thing. And I put them on speakerphone and I, you know, I do voice recorder on my phone. I do whatever I can, try to record it two, three different ways. Um, But needless to say, the audio was not of professional quality. So luckily, my guy, RJ, who sometimes assists with the podcast, he spent hours editing this one, cleaning up the audio the best he can. So he definitely gets an assist on this one for sure. But I still think it's of value. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I certainly did, as I said. And uh, here it is my conversation with the great Stanley Clark. (laughs) I write for this magazine called Jersey Jazz Magazine, and um, we know you're coming to New Jersey on March 26th, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and just kind of go through a few things. Let's do it. Cool, man. So um, let's start off there, actually. Tell me a little bit about the uh, End Forever group, what's going on with that?
1: Well, well, the group is is a bunch of young guys on piano. I have uh, a Georgian pianist uh, from the the country of Georgia, real virtuoso guy, famous. Becca gauthier Civili, he's making quite a name for himself in Europe and and growing by the day in the United States, just tremendous in his 20s. And I have a drummer, his name is Jeremiah Collier, and, um, and and I have a saxophone player named Emilio Modest and he's fantastic. And a guitar player named Colin Cook. We've been together for some time now, and uh, we we toured in Europe and we just finished a pretty remarkable album. We, we've actually taken some Chikorita compositions and and reworked them, and, and so we're very we're very happy about that. It's a double album, and uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. So that that's going to be coming out sometime this summer. And we have a tourings coming up this year. We we start out end of March and and we have a little bit of time off. And starting from May, we pretty much go up into the winter. You know, so uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's nice to be out on the road touring again too. You know, after after COVID and uh, you know and the the business in many ways kind of shut down. You know, so it's kind of uh, last year was kind of I've called soft. Opening, right. and now now it's uh it's pretty it's pretty serious now. Just just I mean, considering the amount of gigs that we have here, so people are starting to come out to the shows. Promoters are more uh, competent, and uh, that they're gonna fill seats. And, uh, so it's all it's all good. It's feeling good.
0: Nice, nice. Now, did you make this record during the pandemic, or
1: some of it? Some of it was during the pandemic, but a lot of it was done like uh, right as the pandemic. Uh, sort of ended. It was drizzling, kind of dwindling out the door there, and uh, and we uh, we got together, and uh, we you know, all the guys came to California, and we we spent time and rehearsed, and then we went out on the road, and then we came back again and recorded. It was very nice. This record was done very much in kind of old school we got in the studio all of us got in there and played this this is like really that you can really feel it on, on on the record it really feels like a group and the music feels like you know like people are actually playing music
0: <laughs> nice nice and are you uh it's primarily electric bass for you on this one
1: no it's both it's both it's uh, it's electric bass the various electric basses and and also acoustic music as well
0: great cool yeah All right. So if you don't mind, let me bring it back to a little bit uh, like the beginning. (laughs) And if you could just talk about your uh, upbringing in uh, Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, well, I was born in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, and uh, eventually we made it out to a city called Roxborough, Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, near Germantown, and I actually went to a high school out there. Uh, music was always kind of a part of my household my mother was kind of semi semi pro opera singer and she was always singing around the house in various languages a very uh, very artistic woman and she i think she just sensed out of the three kids me my brother my sister that I was like into music. She bought me a piano, and I started playing the piano. Then, after that, um, I played a little violin, even less cello. But then eventually, I saw the bass, and the bass—the bass was uh, kind of a an instrument that I felt challenged mm. uh, to play because it, it was big, the acoustic bass, and no one. Wanted to play it. <laughs> we were like in the school that I went to. Like they announced, if you want to join the orchestra, or there's some instruments. Come to the music room, pick out your instrument, and everyone will just walk by this acoustic bass. I grabbed it, pluck kind of plucked
0: the string, and it had such a wretched sound. That it was just you just knew who the hell was going to play this thing. Yeah, right. And and so you know, I did, and
1: I uh, sort of made it my. Uh, quest in life to get get a good sound on this thing I, I still that that's actually based that's the basis behind my my playing not so much the technique even though I've gotten into studying you know lots of technique and probably at points I've had more technique than I need but but my main thing the undercutting thing underneath all that was just to make the bass have a good sound make People pleased when they listen to it, and and you know when you study and look back at the history of the electric bass and guys before me, particularly on the on the acoustic bass, that uh, have the the really good sound like Ray Brown, Ron Carter, uh, and then like electric bass, you know, I'd like to think I have good sound, um, uh, James Jamerson, Larry Graham, uh, Jaco Pastorius. Uh, sure. Many electric bass players. It's really the sound. You can study all the scales and things that you want. You can have all sorts of technique, but if your sound is not good, kind of all that stuff kind of goes out the window. So,
0: so yeah. it's, it's uh it's not just me then. It's a lifelong quest then to get a good sound. Yeah,
1: it's to- totally yeah. It's something you have to really. Kinda kinda like a singer, you know, singers take care of their voices, uh instrumentalists, you know, like taking care of your your hand is you gotta move it.
0: Yeah. So like
1: when you come off the road for three months, you don't like, you know, start playing cards for three months and that's it. You know, you gotta pick the instrument up and, and 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 play it to to keep everything cool, you know. Right,
0: right, definitely. So uh, you mentioned, just just because you mentioned him, I'm actually finishing up a biography on Ray Brown, and I I had the uh, opportunity to speak with him a few times before he passed. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so um, was he one of your major influences?
1: Ray Brown was a, and, and spiritually was like, very influential to me because he was an extremely uptoned person, Mm -hmm. like very positive, and he was really one of the first guys that I felt that had I had heard, I would heard him before Ron Carter, but Ray had the most amazing sound that came out of his bass, like the sound as a matter of fact, I think there's something online where he talks about that Mm -hmm. he talks about, you know, you want to get employed, you want to you know, work, you gotta have a good sound. It doesn't matter how many notes you can play on the bass, you know, and and I, I used to love to go and see him play and I'd hang out with him and talk to him. And, and he would, you know, he was always talking about sound. He wasn't talking about what you play on a C minor chord or, you know, this is how you go play in G flat. All that stuff is, is really secondary. It's actually third in line. You know, you, you you have what comes out of your heart, and then you have your sound, and then your technique, which which is basically just the the, the tools that carry what you're trying to play out. You got to have some kind of technique, but you know whether it's a lot or a little. If you have a great sound, uh, that's all that that's all that matters. And Ray Ray was very very inspiring to me. Uh, uh, in that in that way i got a lot of inspiration from this
0: guy fantastic great great yeah um so you studied bass at school and then um when did the electric bass sort of come into the mix for you
1: you know the electric bass is interesting you know because uh, i tell people i'm really an acoustic bass player that plays electric bass i never really ever envisioned being like a kind of an electric bass god or some piece, something that someone people would like admire. I mean, there's people that know me as an electric bass player that never even realized I played acoustic bass. Mm, right. But the electric bass was something I picked up. Uh, I was probably 16 or 16 years old, 15, 16, and and it was I, I, it was something to play at parties. And I mm. thought you look cool holding the
0: electric bass you know, <laughs> yeah. and,
1: you know, and I the girls seemed to like me a little better when I was holding the electric bass <laughs> as opposed to the acoustic bass. Right. And that was kind of my attitude about it. I never really studied the electric bass. Back in the old days, like late sixties, early seventies, the electric bass was like a secondary instrument uh that that you played. and you know, you'd go to a session with your acoustic bass. And then you play electric bass, but there were guys back then that were serious electric bass players—James Jamerson, you know Chuck Rainey, sure. Gordon Edwards, a few others, you know. And uh, but all these guys played acoustic bass. I mean, there's photos of James Jamerson playing the acoustic bass that some of these electric bass players should look at. I mean, he—my he, favorite one is this one where he's standing with. Martha, the Marth, Martha, Martha Vandellas was in, uh, and, and he's got an acoustic bass, and she's standing yeah. next to him. And there's records that he made uh, on acoustic yeah, bass. Yeah. I always believe that the better electric bass players are guys that play acoustic bass because the acoustic bass has a way of grounding you. You understand in a very acute way the purpose of a, of a, a bass in a band. You can't get on an acoustic bass and start running all up and down the neck after a week playing it because yeah. it
0: will hurt you <laughs> <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> you know
1: that's really the granddaddy of uh, you know, you want to be a serious bass player, pick up the acoustic bass it's funny, I always, I don't know why it's a strange comparison but I, I had a little History of trying to learn how to play golf, and I used to say this is like playing bass as a young guy. You know, you really—it's like you and the bass. Right, you know, right. uh, you and the the club. You know, it's like there's no one's going to help you. It's not a forgiving instrument at all.
0: Right, right. So you started be, before then. You was you went to school though for at right, the Philadelphia Music Academy. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: true? yeah. I went to a school called Philadelphia Musical Academy, and my plan was to. Uh, become i was i was going to audition for the philadelphia orchestra oh wow i want i wanted to be one of the first or if not the first uh african-american colored Negro, whatever we were called back then mm-hmm. uh, i was going to be that person in the philadelphia orchestra but then i met chick Maria and chick said you don't want to do that he says you know yeah, you know, they play the music of the masters and but we're composers too. We can write our own music. He was very funny. He said, uh, "You know, there was Bach and Beethoven. There's Korean clock." <laughs>
0: that sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of dropped that uh, that thing
1: of, uh, but but that was my thing. I mean, I studied the acoustic bass classically. I was going to, you know, that was I was going to do that. And I played jazz. I love playing it. But uh, but that's you know my my training. Uh, that's
0: where it lies you know right right so at that time when you were in school well did you finish uh, at school or no
1: no no i left like in my third <laughs> year and went to new york I had an opportunity to go and audition for Horace silver mm. and so i went up to new york and auditioned for Horace silver and after a few tries and run-throughs i uh i got the gig and i went out on the road with Horace silver and that was really my first um, taste of being a so-called jazz musician and playing with jazz musicians and uh and traveling and all that kind of stuff and i i, I learned a lot from Horace
0: silver right right okay so this was like probably around like 70 72 ish maybe
1: 70, 70, 70 71 70 okay. 71 like pretty early because 72 I was playing with Stan gets mm-hmm. I think I was playing with Stan Getz, 71 this might have been 69 actually
0: Sixty
1: nine seventy 69 70 silver yeah okay cool
0: yeah.
1: when I played with Horace I was still going to college actually oh okay and but I was but I was like going up in the summer to play with him and yeah uh, yeah so it was like 69 70 I think yeah I'm sure
0: mm. Yeah, and I, I guess during that period, that's like, for you, Joe Henderson, Pharaoh Sanders, yeah, Dexter Jordan. Joe Dory.
1: Henderson, Stan Getz. And I, see, I I met Chick with Joe Henderson. Uh, uh, I was playing with Joe Henderson, and the piano player couldn't make it. He says, I'm going to bring this guy down from New York. Mm. Uh, his name is Chick Corea. I'd heard of him. He played with Miles. I think he might have had one record out. And so Chick drove down, and that's, that's how we met on Joe's gig. Mm. And... um uh, we basically took over the stage, and and uh, and never then we were just together all the time making music, and uh, we put a group together right, right, Return to Forever.
0: Yeah, and so how did, like, conceptually, uh, how did that come to be, the Return to Forever?
1: Well, you know, I think it was after we were playing with Joe, and after one of the nights, uh, in the evening, we were hanging out, uh, I remember really clearly we were listening to this Coltrane record, and, and Chick was mentioning how, you know, man, it'd be great to put a band together, like, but have something different. Like, uh, you, know, you know, we talked about, like, how you play music, like, you know, guys that play and their eyes are closed all the time, and, and, mm-hmm. and Chick was saying, it'd be great, you know, you could kind of, guys could look at each other, because, you know, if you're a composer and you gotta cue in a section and everybody's eyes are closed, how are you gonna know what you know? It so was all these kind of little details and nuances and putting groups together. We agreed on a lot of things. And he said, Listen, I gotta go to England for a couple months and I'll be back and we'll get together and we'll put something together. And that's pretty much what happened. We got together and we put a band together. It was myself, Chick Hubert Laws, a drummer named Horace Quartet, uh, or actually prior to that, I played trio with, with uh, Chick, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then we finally evolved into we got these two Brazilian musicians, Ierto Moreira and Flora Puro, and uh, and then we we made uh, uh, two records, beautiful records. The first record was just called Return to Forever on ECM. Sure. Mm-hmm. And
0: then we did uh, a
1: classic. Album that had Spain on it, mm-hmm. 500 miles high, light as a feather, and that album was called Light as a Feather, and I, that was a turning point for me because uh, uh, at that point Chick, I knew Chick was like a this masterful composer, and Chick said, you know, why don't you write something for this album? And I said, nah, you 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 know you you uh, write because you know, you're, you know, you're a writer. You know, he says, no. He says, I promise you, if you write something for the album, I will. Whatever the title of the song is, I'm gonna call the album that name. I said, well, what? If, what if I if I wrote a song called Shit? You know I'm <laughs> <the album>? Shit. <laughs> and he says, whatever it is, I'm gonna call it album. I said, you are crazy. So I wrote this song, Light as a Feather. Laura poem wrote the lyrics, and um, and he chick kept his word and I, you know and I I learned something from chick at that point like uh, being and I always tell people that particularly young musicians that have bands don't don't go to sleep on your band members because you know chick never did he understood that there's you know there's talent everywhere sometimes that guy that's sitting over there that's real quiet might have a song that you can help him flush out and and get out of it And that could change both of your lives, and and that's kind of what happened with us when we turned the rubber. You know, Lenny White, the drummer, when Lenny played with us, I mean, he wrote some of our
0: some of the tunes that got the most airplay, like on radio. Mm. And Lenny was not known. We didn't. I didn't know whether Lenny wrote anything,
1: but Chick did. Chick said, "Why don't you write something and help him figure it out and all that kind of stuff?" So, you know, I, I learned really nice leadership skills with Chick. He was a very generous. Guy. And so uh, that's that's actually I mean, if, if, one, if anyone asks me what I really learned in to learn to cover was was that just how to have a band how to how to uh, treat musicians how to uh, you know like be sure that you're getting everything out of the band and, and you got to really leave your ego at the door yeah. every day it is a, it's a it's very dangerous like. Walk into a band, it just it, those those kind of
0: stories don't end well. Yeah, yeah. So, so was it, was Return to Forever more of a? So was it a collaborative? Like were you guys co-leaders? You would say, or more?
1: Well, you know, I mean, well, you know, leadership is is has really not much to do with the collaboration. That's right. a different thing. And you know, when we all absolutely we collaborated i mean Mm -hmm. i think when it came to to its fullest was when we did the romantic warrior album and that was our biggest album you know platinum album right for an instrumental band i mean uh that that uh uh, you know it just it kept evolving because i think on that record each guy produced his own tracks Mm -hmm. and uh and we went out to caribou ranch and did that uh But Chick was always the fearless leader, you know, you have to have someone that has the final say, you know, and and that was Chick, you know, so, and he was the oldest guy, so we figured, we figured he knew more. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, Right.
0: So, um, as you mentioned, so that's around the time of Return to Forever, I guess seventy four. That's when you start recording your own albums under your own name. Yeah, right?
1: I was very lucky when I started making my records because I'm, I'm, I'm also a composer. You know, I got, of course, yeah. You know, I've, gotten into, I've written a lot of, you know, eighty different films, and I've had a long career with that. And uh, and so I've always, I was always writing music since I was fifteen or sixteen, mm. and I had noticed that no one had written anything for the electric bass. Like serious, like I'm gonna write this song for the electric bass. And that was really the story behind my early records. It It had nothing to do with me trying to be something with the electric bass. I just wrote music for the electric bass. And those, and I wrote a bunch of, uh, I wrote a bunch of things called bass folk songs. Mm-hmm. The very first bass folk song was was on acoustic bass. The second bass folk song was actually it's called Lopsy Lou, that's bass folk song number two. And basically, all it's not a complicated song. It's just a song that you can play on the bass. When you play it on the bass, you know what it is if you're familiar with that song or that type of music. Sure. And it only sounds good on the bass you're not going to play Wopsy Lou on a saxophone mm-hmm. or even a piano right. and so I, I have I have 20, 21 bass folk songs and one day, is out, one day I'm gonna put them all out and uh, and so that that's was the story behind my early records was uh, just I was writing music for the electric bass and uh, yeah that was a lot of fun you know I, I met a guy his name was Matt Weiss and uh, well, actually, my first solo album was uh, was produced by Chick, and that was on a label Polydor, mm-hmm. and that 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 was a good album. That was a that was a fine album, but that wasn't necessarily what I consider my first solo album. Mm-hmm. That just Children of Forever was kind of an extension of Return to Forever, but the, the, the t- tables were turned, and 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 just that the majority of the music was written by me. But when I got to the Stanley Clark album on Nemper Records, Good. that was a real, true solo album, because I produced it, uh, I had a great engineer, engineer-producer, Ken Scott,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the music was, 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 all, was all mine, and the concept was was all mine, and music was changing, and I, and I, I always wanted to bring in, uh, you know, my feelings about uh, electric music, uh, and, and I had, like I mentioned, like Lopsy Lou is on that. Sure. Mm-hmm. That record and and that was bass folk song number two. And I wanted that there and and I was I was hanging out a lot with Tony Williams and a lot of the guys that were doing that were doing what was called the new music, which was jazz rock music. Like basically guys soloing and playing right. stuff very loudly. Right. <laughs> you know, with amplifiers and, you know, wearing right. all kinds of wild stuff and and, and it was fun. And I remember on that record, um, I was hanging with Tony a lot. And actually, Tony was the guy that's responsible for me putting Lopsy Lou on that record. Mm. I'd come to see Tony, and I said, "Tony, I got this long piece on the second side of the album uh, that, that I'm going to do. It's going to be on, it's going to close the album. It's called Life Sweet. So I go to uh, Tony's place in Harlem. And, I'm showing it in the thing, and then he says, yeah, what else you working on? And I says, man, I'm working on these little songs for the bass, they're not, they're they're kind of little songs that anybody, a 12 year old can play at a guy. I just want some information for the bass so people can learn the bass easier, but have music, not just scales and notes and things like that They can actually play a song. And so he says, oh, yeah, what is it? So I played him this thing, Lopsy Louie, and he would not let me leave his place until I agreed with him that it was going to be on the album. He said, I want to play that, man. I want to play that song. And so I said, you sure? Are you sure? He says, yeah. And so we put it on the record. And and, uh, I thanked Tony for that. It's funny, certain people, they have vision and things like that. And it's funny, that song was like uh, uh, the record company asked me to make a single of it, shorten it up, mm. and we did, it and, and it, it did pretty good, it was like, it was just, it was something that gave people something else to listen to, other than just, a, you know, typical R&B, or rock, or whatever was out at that time, it was, it was a new form of music, and it, and it, uh, it, it gave people, and, and uh, different instrumentalists, something else to listen to, it was, diff- it was different so it's very
0: cool you know yeah yeah I mean that was my first awareness of Stanley Clark that album and uh, yeah, it's yeah. and it's yeah. Um, because you know I guess there wasn't much uh, many albums be- featuring the electric bass you know no there was, there was uh,
1: none at that time there was, I mean there were, there were guys that made records they were acoustic I mean they were electric bass players but
0: they mm. were maybe singing or something like that Right. But not not just straight up you know just in
1: your face electric bass you know and and, uh, and I wanted to do that as, as a composer I mean I, I'll be real honest with you if I felt at that time that there was, wasn't enough trumpet music out there you know which there was yeah. an overabundance of it I would have wrote for a trumpet I would have said man we need to get some more trumpet music out there but I noticed that that drummers and bass players, there was hardly there seemed to be more records on drummers than bass players at that time, and definitely mm-hmm. on electric bass players, there was nothing.
0: Yeah, and right. so that
1: was the that was the inspiration. It really, as funny when it grew into this thing, especially by school days, it was like man, and I was doing gigs and going out, and you know, and, and, uh, and I had to like, in many ways put the acoustic bass on the side I, I would have it on the shows I would at least play one or two songs on it but right. I was turning into this like electric bass guy and it was kind of weird for me sometimes it still feels a little strange to me but but you know it was just, it's just the residuals from writing all those things for the, uh, for the electric bass and I'm glad I did because um, now you know uh, you have so many guys that have uh, records as, as you know, solo bass, electric bass players, yeah.
0: bass players,
1: so many of them. So it's nice. I feel a little partly responsible mm-hmm. for that, and, and uh, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice thing. So it's it's kind of normal now. I feel good about that. The electric bass is like you know, it it it, uh, it has its place, and and then on top of that, uh, now you can go to school. And major in music, and, and your instrument can be the electric bass. Back in the early seventies, late sixties, forget
0: it. Yeah, right. Oh, right. you, you, know, you were not going anywhere with the
1: electric bass educationally. So now it's, it's a serious instrument,
0: and I'm really happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you, you mentioned school days. I mean, that was a juggernaut. Uh, did that? I mean, did did, did did that surprise you? The success of that uh, album?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, I mean, to have a a bass-featured album to do so well, I mean, it's
1: pretty yeah. remarkable, you know? When that record came out, um, you know, especially when we did that tune, everybody in the room, uh, just to tell you a little, give you a little side note, basically, we're sure. at Electric Ladyland Studios, and so mm-hmm. we finished, we didn't do, because we couldn't afford it, we didn't do, like, a lot of overdubs on that record, you know, right. basically. We did two takes. One was a half take because uh, microphones fell off the bass drum or something. They stopped it. So then we mm-hmm. started again. And, and I and you know Ray Gomez played this tremendous guitar solo. We get into the song and, and we're playing it. And we, we come all come into the room and, and the engineer Ken Scott, um, who you know did the White Album for the Beatles, he didn't like he's a series engineer and he goes. Uh, he says, yeah, man, that was really something. And I, I wasn't that sold on the, 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 the track. You know, my wife at the time said, nah, you know, it's okay. You know, <laughs> you know, later bought her three houses.
0: But I remember
1: he, the, playback, he, the playback, the bass seemed to be so loud. I said, Ken, man. The bass is too loud and he looked at me with a heavy heavy english accent he goes no mate the bass is never too loud when you play it and that mm-hmm. was the first time someone had ever said something like that to me you know and, yeah. and that's the way it was it was like every little note that i played on that song was heard and that was like a like a vocalist and and that was really the key behind that thing and, and uh it just came out and it uh and I was amazed. I remember going to LA and there was a big billboard on Sunset Boulevard, the school days album. And it was seriously climbing the charts and it was everywhere, worldwide. It was everywhere and, and uh and uh, still to this day, man, there's you know, it's always somebody's always going to school days. Uh, I remember the first time I went to uh, somewhere in Africa somewhere mm. and, and I'm playing some music and this guy in the back is going, school days, school days, and the whole audience goes, God, I didn't even know these guys got the album. Mm-hmm,
0: right. And
1: uh, yeah, it was, just, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing and um, I'm happy to have written that song and uh, you know, it took me about five minutes to write that song.
0: And, Crazy, and, uh, right?
1: And I was, who, who would ever know? you never know
0: in these kind of things you know right right you don't know which one's going to connect right it's Just never know it's organic I guess yeah I mean that is that's, uh, that's the album I give to the students and you know they start playing electric yeah. bass I said it can sure. do a lot more than you think <laughs> check this out <laughs> <laughs> right. and then by right. the way why don't you play upright too and then it takes them a while but you know they shift yeah
1: quick. yeah they got to look at that and go well what is he doing what yeah. is that right. is that a violin
0: cello it's a cello isn't it <laughs> yeah, sorry, oh, you know, I'm sure you've heard it a, um, a lot. So, um, oh, awesome. So, uh, just because he's obviously being mentioned a lot uh, with his recent passing, you did a tour then with uh, Jeff Beck, I think, in '79. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: You know, I spent a lot of time with Jeff, a lot of times. Re- you know, he's really. A- Cool friend. That's I'll just say. That's the only way I could say it was a cool friend. You know, more than just a good friend. He was like a cool friend. He was a really special. This guy, you know, you meet certain guys and uh, you think that they're invincible. Like you just never get the idea that the guy's going to pass away. Mm. You know, I just figured he'd be a hundred years old or something, still out there playing freeway jam or something. You know. Yeah. And uh and but when he passed, I was so surprised so surprised, I, I same with Chick you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it you know, it, it saddened me that he passed, because he was a guy that was like a big light, you know, and he was a real instrumentalist, you know, that's the other thing that I liked about Jeff, you know, he really trumpeted the whole idea of holding an instrument, playing it, getting in front of as many people as you did matter, whether it was 20 people or 20,000 people, and he could excite this, to those people. He had no like thoughts in his head that, well, you know, I have to sing in order to be able to connect with people. And I, you know, I try to tell instrumentalists that don't don't fall into that. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be uh, Jeff Beck or Miles Davis or the right. Hancock or, or whoever. But don't ever think of your sect yourself as a as some kind of second class citizen just because you play an instrument you don't sing. That's, that's that's ludicrous. It's 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 a stupid thing you're setting yourself up. And Jeff was a guy. He was a great guy. I mean. You know, anyone that would come to a show could see that he's this guy was a guitar player mm-hmm. you know that's what he was a guitar player and so that same feeling uh, can be on any instrument the guy's a trumpet player he's a bass player he's a drummer you know it's, and, and that that was my favorite thing about Jeff. i'll never forget we played the first tour i ever did with him we played uh, uh japan we played the big stadium there. It was called the Budokan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like a, a gigantic place and we played two nights there. It was sold out. It was me, Jeff and a 16, 17 year old Simon Phillips on drums. <laughs> Simon just bass. was like a little kid. and I think we had a keyboard player, Tony Hymas, I think, yeah. And, and I'll never forget at that time in the States, there was a band Journey or was it Genesis? One of those bands had the number one record in the States. That's right. And those guys had to play the two thousand seater down the street. Huh. Played fifteen thousand seater. Sold out two nights, right? Mm. And 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 Jeff, he he was the first guy that gave me the the idea, like, you know, man, you know, the, 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 none of that stuff means anything. You know, you just play your heart out and the way the balls falls, the way the balls, you know. Mm. And uh, uh my, my favorite thing with Jeff was because uh, I, I was a Jimmy Hendrix fan and, and you know he was around when Jimmy came to England so he told me you know all the the ins and outs all the drama with all the guitar players that you know I'm sure somebody will write a book about that but uh, sure. Jeff, Jeff was a cool guy he's a good storyteller and very uh, very hella of- right
0: so you guys kept in touch throughout the years
1: yeah yeah I, I would see him here and there and the last couple of years, uh, well, actually more than a couple of years, of kind of, you know, he he, uh, I think he's he, he wasn't touring for a while. They got married. then he was touring. Then I think he was,
0: went on tour with this actor. Was it Johnny? Uh, Johnny he, Depp. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Depp. yeah. So you know, he's he's active, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. I think the last time I saw him, he was we were in Europe, and I think. The young bass player Cal with, with, him, or with, with oh, or whatever yeah. last was. With with just himself. starting mm-hmm. starting the play with him. And that
0: was the last time last time I saw him. Right. Oh, cool. And then yeah. I and then around that same time this this was always an interesting project to me. The uh, the New Barbarians. How did that yeah. come how did that come to be?
1: That was kind of a weird thing i just all i remember is i was on a beach somewhere going <laughs> to uh, cool. Bahamas or something like that and i got a phone call on the beach it said ronnie wood is on the phone This was like 79 or something mm-hmm. like that maybe mm-hmm. or maybe it was earlier than that i don't i don't know and uh, i speak to ronnie he said hey you know this is ronnie I stones i said yeah okay yeah, all right man what's we'll up i thought they he would call me for a session or something sure. uh, do like 20 something gigs and he starts telling me, he goes Keith Richards, something happened maybe he some kind of problem in Canada and he had to he had to do a gig there but he was saying they can't just do one gig when they do one gig they have to do like 15 or 20, they just can't gear up for one gig because hmm. <laughs> you know just financing the numbers doesn't work that way so came out to California, and, um, uh, and you know, we all met up, and then just started playing, and put it all together, it was kind of like playing with the Rolling Stones, it was the same outfit, same people, just uh, uh, Mick Jagger, uh, he, he was at the first gig, and I think a couple others, and Bill Wyman wasn't around, I think he was just starting to to leave or something, and, yeah. and uh, I, I had no intentions of joining uh, the Rolling Stones. I told him, uh, I was, no, that was not something I was going to do. But they, but those guys were kind of, they really liked what I was doing. You know, I was really impressed. I remember having a conversation with Mick Jagger in, uh, in Toronto, which was our first gig, and I was really impressed how much he and those guys knew about Musicians. I mean, he was talking about Sonny Rollins, the saxophone player. Mm-hmm, sure. he, was, he was talking about all, and he knew like more about my records than than, uh, than even I did. He said, "You know, that third track on this album." You know, so that's the thing I, I really like about those days. I don't, I don't know whether that's true today. Uh, you know, you can't tell with, with hip hop artists. Some you can. There's some hip hop artists that you know that I've met like. Like believe it or not, like Flavor flames like a, a fusion drummer. A lot really?
0: Yeah. People don't know that. <laughs> yeah, people don't know that. He knows more about Billy
1: Cobham and Lenny White and you know all mm-hmm. our records than you would even imagine. And so no. does Chuck D. I'm talking about these guys. You know, you you, you you'd be amazed. Mm-hmm. So certain mm-hmm. artists, you know, the problem with today. And I, I, I kind of, I don't know whether I blame the lawyers or record companies or whatever. There's just kind of a division between genres that wasn't there in the in the 70s. I mean, right. you know, you, you know, Cat Stevens, Steven Stills would call jazz musicians on the records. I mean, I record with. Paul McCartney, and he's a bass player too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
1: I mean, I mean, it's, it's like you know, it was a normal thing. I mean, the genre of music you played just the genre of music that you played. You played music that you, you know, that you'd end up in Madison Square Garden, great, or you played music that you ended up in the Village Vanguard. But everybody came down to see. I mean, I remember seeing Mick Jagger, and, and I think he came to see us and village vanguard uh paul mccartney came to ronnie scotts of london the turn turner river when we had the Florida and i air so for the lightest and and feather tour mm-hmm. you know so i mean you know those days were were really better days for me uh music now it's a little divided and uh so you don't get that mixture of things but but there are some people you know like you know there there's some people that uh you know, there's piano player Robert Glasper. I mean, he's mm-hmm.
0: a lot of hip hop artists like embrace him, and he embraces them, and the comedians and all that kind of stuff. And, right. Uh, but some
1: of the other stuff, you know, like the kind of manufactured artists, they stay manufactured. That's all I can
0: say. Right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. You know,
1: I mean, uh, it would be great to see uh, some of those. Singers will do something with some other kind of musicians, and not just some tracks or something. You know, mm-hmm. some electronic tracks. You know, some are pretty can sing very well. Anyway,
0: no, no, it's interesting. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm getting there. So, uh, George Duke, uh, the, the Clark Duke Project. That was an interesting one, um, and you you spent a lot did a lot of work with George Duke over the years. I yeah, think.
1: George I, I, I you know what I met George in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, like around 71, 72 in, in Europe when he was playing with Cannibal Adderley. We just always became we, we we were friends from that point on. It. So we just decided we were going to just play on each other's records whenever we could because when I finally moved to California, you know, we were we were living pretty close to each other and so we were hanging out pretty much almost every day you know, we, we'd just hang out in uh, George's place particularly his house was kind of a place where a lot of people kind of came to hang out he was a great guy, There's another guy that surprised me, his passing you know, mm. I knew he was sick at the end he did tell me that he had some problems and um, but I just didn't think he was going to go because uh, you know he was another one of those guys real invincible personality you know but uh, hey you know stuff happens man yeah, yeah but we we made a lot of we had a lot of fun we made a lot of records a lot of music together when we finally started making Clark Duke records that was another surprise we just we just got together and that record we recorded that thing pretty fast and uh, and then we had that big hit Sweet mm-hmm. Baby and uh, yeah it was we toured forever on that thing mm-hmm. I remember George saying God man when are they going to get sick of this tune
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> never it's a, it's a pop hit. I don't think they ever will Yeah Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, and then one of the pro- projects that I always found very interesting was uh, what you did with Copeland, uh, Animal Logic.
1: Yeah, Stewart was another guy that I met in 71. He was in a band called, uh, I think it was 71, he was in a band called Curved Air, hmm. way before the police, and then Stewart was working with Joan Armitrading, doing something, I don't know what he was doing, but he was at those gigs, and that's how... We met. He, he used to. I uh, remember he used to. Um, uh, when we finished our sound checks with uh, Return Forever, uh, and this was in the '70s, like '73, '74. You know, he would he would say, Lenny, let me borrow your drums and sit down and play a little bit and all that." And then later, uh, some years later, um, you know, the, the the police showed up, and I remember Sting. Uh, I, I always knew him as Gordon. He was singing in a band in, out of Newcastle, mm-hmm. and uh, they used to open to us in Return Forever. Uh, this band, and huh. uh, yeah, it wasn't the greatest band in the world, but anyway, what what happened? Those guys went on and and got together. And it was a great thing along with Stewart's brother, and they created a, a you know a mega band. And it, was, it was fantastic. And me and Stewart are still. Uh, friends a day, when we can, we ride bikes on uh, Sunday, every huh. Sunday, that's so that's, that's a old friend of mine, and uh, I like Stuart, he's a very, uh, a lot like Ray Brown, very positive, just everything that comes out is positive about it. it's very important, if you're able to do that, you know, sometimes it's difficult to stay positive all the time, but sure. Stewart is one of those guys that has that ability to just rise above. Ray, as they
0: right. say. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, what did you think? Are uh, you happy with, with the way that band turned out, Animal Lot Project?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a, to be, to be quite honest, it was kind of a, I won't say it was an afterthought. We just said, hey, let's put something together. Mm-hmm. Let's go out and do a tour. I said, yeah, sure, why not? And we we got a, we auditioned, uh, we had a, it was fun. We had like a Hollywood audition where, 200 girls, one prettier than the next, showed up. Not so
0: bad. <laughs> that, okay. that, was, that was the best part. Just <laughs> all these girls showing up. And Miles Copeland, brother, Stewart's brother, and all trying to be the next. Let's see, who
1: was famous at that time? Sydney Lauper. I, I don't know. Whoever was the, sure. Madonna, all trying to be the next whoever. Right. And uh, finally, we ended up with this girl that came up with a bag full of cassettes and. She seemed to be the most professional one. and Debbie Holland, she had all these songs. And and it was fun because we could take her songs, uh, remix them, repurpose them, redesign them. And, And, you know, it was easy to just start working because the other girls looked great, but then we would have to figure out, can she sing, yeah. can she sing in this key? It's just been too much work, you know? So we right. got together, but we didn't but, but we didn't get together to be the next whatever. This was like fun. Hmm. We got together, we, we did some touring, we had a lot of fun. We made up the first record, second record, Logic, and yeah. that was pretty much it. And we and we ended it and and that was that. A lot of fun. And we're still friends, Debbie and uh, Stuart, myself. And uh, we had various guitar players. had Michael Thompson from LA. We had Rusty who played with the. Uh, uh, I think he plays with Paul McCartney now. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was just fun. You know, it was a lot of
0: fun, man. Cool, cool. I mean, is there anyone that you have not yet worked with that you would like to? I mean, it seems like you've played with everyone.
1: Uh, I think I played with pretty much everyone that I ever wanted to play with I'm always open for someone that I don't know mm-hmm. or know about to show up and say hey man can you come play with me and I check them out and it's something amazing you know but right. I, pretty much all the people from my time period that I ever wanted to really play with I played with or you know I, I played with what I'd like to believe all the greatest piano players ever you know uh, you know, George Duke, um, Chick Corea, Ernie sure. Hancock, and the great McCoy Tyner, I mm. um, did a record, an odd avant-garde record with a bunch of musicians there, Bill Evans played, sure. and, um, and many others, many young players, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's very fortunate, very fortunate.
0: Cool, and then let me just ask you a little bit about the film scoring. Um, I mean, I think it began with Pee Wee's Playhouse. Is that how it all began? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah I did a, did an episode <laughs> of Pee Wee's Playhouse, and, and uh, uh, like I told you, I was a composer. You know, thought of myself as a composer since I was 15, 16 years old. Right. And so being a film composer was like a natural thing because I I can churn out a lot of things. I can write really fast. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all of it's going to be spectacular. It's going to in film composing. It's going to be adequate. It's going to be good. It's going to be you know. It's going to make sense. And and so that was kind of a natural marriage for me being a film composer. I did like a lot of films, a lot of things, and I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much because um, it was a it's a great art form. I don't know whether it's still like that, but it was a great uh, mixture of. music, uh, literature, and visual arts, you know, coming together all in one, I mean, some of the smartest uh, people I've ever met were in, uh, in, you know, making films, you know, so, uh, you know, it was a great, great art form, it's changed a lot now, I mean, there's more access to making films, yeah. mm-hmm. Netflix, all these various, Amazon. lot more access so more movies are being made I'm not sure whether they're all great but
0: right, right. Uh, but you know but there's more opportunity to make films so that's good right. are you still are you still involved with film scoring or not as I'm much kind of
1: semi-retired from that you know? okay. uh, I mean I, I don't like to use the word retire I just don't let's put it this way I tour more I, I'm enjoying touring I, okay. I like it I really like touring I don't think I'll ever get that out of my system. Something about going on the stage, playing in front of people—that I just can't, can't seem
0: to kick the habit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. And my final question is: uh, I know you have this web series now, the uh, Stanley Clark Space Nation. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. I, I've I've enjoyed watching it.
1: Yeah, it's a nice podcast. Matter of fact, it's good you bring that up. We're working on our on our fourth show right now. Fourth show. It's all about the acoustic bass mm. and it's, it's, its relationship with the electric bass and electric bass players. So, um, anyway, that's yeah. There's a, there's another show coming. We're working on it now. We just started editing it, putting it together. It's gonna to be really exciting that one.
0: Okay, great. And is there anything else you want to mention or promote? No, that's pretty much it. You know, just our tour to people they can
1: look at and see we got. Pretty serious amount of dates this year, and mm-hmm. uh, so they can check it out on, you know, on social media and all that sort of stuff, and uh, hope to see the people at the show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, hey, yeah. thanks for your time, Matt. This was a it was a pleasure for me to to speak with you.
1: All right, man, it was great. Nice interview. Okay.
0: All right, my friends, there you have it. There's my interview with Stanley Clark. I want to thank him for his time. And for all things Stanley Clark, you can go to stanleyclark.com. To learn more about our program, you can go to 30albumsfor30years.com. And uh, I'm in the process of putting up the Stanley Clark interview, um, the article that I wrote on Stanley, and a bunch of other articles related to um, many of the jazz legends who I've had a chance to interview. Also, I have a book, The History of American Music, 1750-1950, through an origin story from Kendall Hunt Publishers. Thanks again, and together let's keep the music alive.